0: What's going on mike hey ty <laughs> i don't think you know how excited i am to finally have you on my show you've declined my offers what six months in a row now
1: <laughs> I, i'm just i'm too big for you i don't know what to do um my podcast is just blown up so much with all the requests for interviews i you know Not you're so. low on the priority list are you kidding me this is awesome man i'm so glad to be here
0: yeah thanks for coming on. Uh, for those that don't know who Mike Moynihan is, Mike is a baseball collector, and he is our vintage expert. He's everything expert on the Clear channel, and it's uh, getting to know you the last year has been worth everything. <laughs> You've been awesome. I'm excited to talk to you today, but this is kind of an interesting one because we were thinking through some topics, and then, of course, out of nowhere yesterday, the big news comes out. That collectors universe is being acquired by Nat Turner and he owns D1 Capital. I think that's right. Is that D one Capital Partners?
1: Yeah, there's Prefer- two other investment groups that are VC groups that are gonna be part of this. Cool. VC stands for venture capital. So
0: yeah, I guess we should clarify some of these terms as we're talking today. Um, and I thought there's no there's no better guy to talk through this situation than you, and I, th- I think we should break it down in a couple ways. I think. Today's episode, let's talk about what we think are the pros and cons of this. I think there's a lot of pros. There's a few cons as well. I'd love to get your take. You obviously being a financial planner uh, and and doing what you do, you probably have a different perspective than I do. Let's talk about that. And then I think we should have a second part episode on your podcast where we talk about what we would do
1: if we were acquiring PSA. I think that sounds like a great plan. Let's go for it.
0: All right. So, so real quick, uh, the, the, the specifics of the deal, right? It's seventy five dollars a share, seventy five twenty five, I think. Seven hundred million dollar buyout by Nat Turner and Cohen Private Ventures and D One Capital Partners. When you first saw the news, what was your immediate reaction to that?
1: It's about bloody time. That was my <laughs> okay. first reaction, okay. honestly. Um, first of all, my background, I'm a certified financial planner. I've been doing investments for individuals and businesses for 22 years. And so I've been a shareholder, excuse me, I was a shareholder until yesterday of Collectors Universe stock for many years and made a nice chunk of money on the stock over the years. And I sold most of my shares back when the Trimming scandal was all going on and hot and heavy, and I was worried about the effects on people submitting to PSA and therefore affecting their earnings and all this kind of stuff. And so then I sold sold the remainder of my shares yesterday at a dollar above the uh, buyout price, which, like you said, is 75 and a quarter, which if you look at the parabolic rise of the stock this year, it's been nothing short of insane. As the whole market, as a whole, right? I mean, but you... I mean, so
0: for those that are listening on uh, podcast channel, we're showing something on our our feed right now. Essentially from April, we were at 15. (laughs) 500X since April?
1: Yeah. 5X, yeah. yeah, 500%, 5X, yeah. But but what people don't... uh, Collectors Universe is a very small company and small yeah. caps in general this year have not done very well. And that makes sense in the COVID era because you've got smaller companies that have had to shut down and it, it's affected them more than your apples and your Amazons, and your, you know, your giant companies, they can weather the storm of a economic recession slash where well, we're in a recession an economic recession way better than smaller companies of which PSA is one of those smaller companies. And yet PSA is, you know, record backlogs million plus cards, probably closer to 2 million now actually backlogged cards. I don't know if we, can we just talk about that real quick? Because I think this deal is so funny because there's been several other guys that have done, either YouTube videos or whatever. I've seen commentary within the community on some forums and stuff. And they've done a really good job breaking it down. But the backlog of cards is interesting. And a lot of people thought, remember, a public company, their number one goal is to make money for who? The shareholders. The shareholders, that's right. And so shareholders are, are – I guess I should say Wall Street itself is incredibly fickle. And mm-hmm. I say that because if you, I've seen stocks that have blown away earnings mm-hmm. and that stock tanks. And it's because the estimates were for not only to be blowout, but super blowout earnings. And it wasn't. And so it quote unquote disappointed on estimates. And that's never made any sense to me in all the years I've been doing this that a a stock can blow out on earnings stock goes down because it didn't meet someone else's estimate of what they should have earned, which I think is, well, they're just estimating anyway. They don't know. And so earnings, what you have with this backlog is built in earnings because they don't charge or count the revenue on their books on their balance sheet until they grade the card. Mm -hmm. So if they have this giant backlog of cards, then, Hey, guess what? That's pent-up future earnings that we're going to have that we can, I'll, I'll use this word, trickle out, so to speak, or, or spread out that actual recognition of those earnings and keep our earnings track as a public company going up, which yeah. will make our stock price go up. And Believe me, all the guys that it's true of every company, if you're an executive, an owner, you're compensated highly on company stock. So you want that stock to do just as well as the average Joe like Mike who owns it like myself. I want it to do well too. They really want it to do well, the stock price. And I'm not, I don't want to use the word manipulation because that's not what I'm talking. I'm just saying they want it to do well because they have a lot of their worth or at least some of their worth tied up in that stock. And so now that now, going private, being pulled away private, the backlog becomes a nuisance more than a quote-unquote future revenue stream. It's an impediment to future growth because how can you instill new policies, procedures, technology yeah. when you're still trying to, you know, climb out from under this giant mountain of, of cards sitting in backlog, mm-hmm. right? So I think the first priority for them is going to be, let's knock this out. Let's do a good job. Let's, you know, grade them fairly, all those things. But let's ramp up processing of all these orders so that we can move into R&D of the next wave of grading, which I think is coming, by the way. Let's not talk about that yet because I'm very interested. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) not going on tangents.
0: Yeah, no, you definitely are. Uh it's okay, that's why editing's awesome. Um I'll, I'll I'll move different parts of what you just said across the entire podcast. Gotcha. You don't have to talk the rest of the entire episode. We're good. Awesome. <laughs> no, but no so a couple of things about what you said. First first is I think to your point I think it's an incredibly bullish sign for the hobby. You got a guy Nat Turner who's not just any guy who I mean obviously he's Successful in the tech companies invested in, he's got a great uh, venture capitalist firm who's invested in some seriously big time players in the tech world. But he's an avid basketball card collector. Like one, I I think you know this, but he has one of the best collections in basketball cards that we we've, we've seen. I right? even publicized not one them.
1: of not one of he has he, the best
0: the best basketball card collection. By him investing seven hundred million dollars, it's not just saying I believe in PSA. I believe he is betting. 700 million dollars on the growth and the excitement of the hobby that's right I, again i i think a guy like that who's obviously a big time collector and knows the hobby is looking at this through the lens of do i see this being sustainable in the short and you know probably midterm and i think he just he gave us 700 million dollars in guarantees that we're going to be he believes the hobby is going to continue going up so that's my first reaction to that what do you what are your thoughts there
1: Totally agree. Nat Turner's collection, it, uh, you talk about his basketball collection, his baseball collection. He's shown it before on YouTube, and it's made me blush. Really? It's Absolutely insane. His vintage baseball collection is second to none. Uh, but again, <laughs> if you have enough money, you can buy whatever you want. And he does. And But he loves the stuff, too. It's not just throwing money at it. He truly yeah. has a passion for the hobby. And how cool is it that a hobbyist has bought PSA? I mean, I just think it's nothing but good things. And we'll get into that.
0: Yeah. Um, Second thing I would love your response to is I I think, and I don't think anyone debated this, but for the, the new people coming into the hobby, new people just entering the marketplace, like, this reinforces the absolute importance of the like of grading in the hobby. It is the fuel that feeds the engine. <laughs> it's not going anywhere,
1: right? Absolutely not. And if you're not on board with grading, you need to because I don't and you know there's three major players, right? PSA, BGS, and yep. SGC. PSA is the juggernaut. You can say whatever you want about, you know, the backlog and SGC started seeing orders. Well, what happened to SGC? Guess what? Same problem that PSA has, they had. And they started missing deadlines. They started getting backlogged. And, you know, it used to be, back in the day, PSA was mainly kind of that, you know, they would grade post-war to you know, '90s stuff. And then you had SGC grading all the pre-war and you had everything new going to Beckett, every to BGS, everything coming out of the packs, all the rookies, everything was going to BGS. That's not true anymore. Everything's going to PSA, everything. And it's, they are the juggernaut. Nat Turner recognizes that, and he's going to make them, he's going to swallow everyone else. I have a feeling.
0: I I totally agree. I think this, absolutely sets
1: PSA as the
0: de facto gold standard in grading BGS SGC. They had their chance to take the girl to the dance and they'd missed the opportunity the last year. Uh, I feel like there was a a little opening, a little sliver for them to take a shot and they both swung and missed. Yeah. What happened
1: to them? What do you think happens to them over the next two years?
0: I think, um, I think, like you said, they probably either they, they go really niche and focus on certain things or maybe they get acquired. Maybe there's this continued consolidation. That's that's a great question. I mean, it's not like so. So right now, the stats for modern day cards are about 75 percent of the sold cards on eBay are PSA. So the other 25, percent that's a lot of cards, right? of them are falling. It's like 24% are falling to BGS and another 1% goes to SGC of modern day cards. Uh, I mean, that's obviously going to widen, right? It's going to be 80% in a few months, Um, but it's not like they don't, they still have a sizable business and Beckett does more than just great cards. So uh, what do I mean? What are your thoughts? I mean, I'm sure Nat Turner's already thinking through this and probably has a strategy in place to figure out a way to,
1: I don't think he needs to. I don't think acquiring them is going to be on the table. I think just overwhelming them is on the table and should be. The problem is we all know what, I mean, competition is good, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's my only concern. If I was to have a concern is competition is good. It keeps prices low.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. It, uh, it drives innovation. You know, it's an inspiration for innovation And because you got to come up with what's the next thing to make people want to use our service over someone else. Uh, We'll see. we got a new player coming into the grading world. Uh, We'll see if that plays any. I don't think it'll be that big a deal, honestly. But it certainly will. The the barrier for entry into the grading world is going to be so, so difficult now for any company that wants to try to build a better mousetrap in the grading world he's just going to make it so good. You're just going to go, nah, it's not worth it. It would take so much money, right. That you just can't, nobody's going to want to do it.
0: Yep. Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. I think we'll talk, I I do have some, the negatives I will say here in a minute, but I think to your point, uh, optimization, like this is what he's done, right? The reason he gets involved and it's not like he doesn't have connections. He gets involved in these tech companies. He's extremely well-networked. He's going to be able to use all of those connections to really quickly optimize and drive efficiencies at PSA. Um, You know, I think all the tech, the manufacturing logistics, he's already invested in um, a company that looks at, you know, does computerized grading, like like, uh, you hinted towards earlier. Like he's got a, he didn't enter this thinking, I'm going to put a plan together. He entered this with a plan in mind already. And I think it's going to be really quick. And then you know, as we we start to see these changes, it's gonna be pretty exciting.
1: There was a shareholder letter sent out by uh, one of the large shareholders of you know, they were an activist investor, large shareholders. Did you hear about this? Have you heard about this? No, go ahead. This was done months ago. Uh, they sent a shareholder shareholder letter out that said basically we don't really like how things are going. And they were at the time, I think, a fifteen percent shareholder of collector's universe the parent company of psa yeah and they basically said you got to do all you got to fix all these things and you gave them this laundry list get rid of the old crotchety you know board of directors people that you have bring in some new people the f- number one name on their list of who they needed to bring in was nat turner no kidding and that i think honestly because this was 6 months ago 4 wow. months ago maybe that sparked hey maybe i could do that in nat turner's mind i'd love to talk to nat turner and find out but interesting how things have moved and this seems to have happened pretty quickly honestly from what i can tell you
0: think someone just randomly mentioned nat turner
1: no do i don't think no no that- no i don't think it was random i'm just saying or for nat, a deal like this to happen,
0: i want to i want to acquire collector's universe might be time to start throwing my name out there
1: <laughs> but it's, i i don't think it i mean did you did you even know this was on the till yesterday when they announced it did no. you even know this was even a possibility
0: no i mean until i looked to yesterday at just nat turner's background and the breadth of his wealth. I had no idea he could even do something like this. It's quite impressive.
1: Yeah. He could buy PSA four or five times over. So yeah, he, he's got the, he's got the, the skins to do it. <laughs> so yeah, if you look at, and I'll
0: show you my screen so you can see it. If you go to natturner.com. um, Showing, showing. There you go. There's his angel investments. And you can see, I mean, it's it's a long list. It's a long list of, for anyone in the tech space will know some of these names, but let's see if you know uh, Clover Health, I think it was a big one for him. And look at these guys. So many companies he's invested in.
1: Do you know how old he is? 34, right? He's only 34 years old.
0: <laughs> Jeez insane insane yeah i mean my goodness, most he's acquired acquired ipo blue apron lifelock everybody knows lifelock milo acquired by ebay <laughs> uh i mean look at all these companies he's invested in have been acquired or ipo my goodness gracious
1: yeah he's doing okay
0: he failed in a few too here you go he's not perfect
1: okay nobody is
0: all right anyway um all right so any of the thoughts on just the pros i mean i think we've covered a lot of it. it i think we're both very this is a net bullish sign for the hobby and a great thing for psa
1: yeah i i think it's only good for the hobby absolutely
0: you you mentioned the backlog being cleared up first what else do you think happens almost immediately? What do you think he he goes in and starts shaking up that we start to see in the next
1: few months? I think he fires Joe Orlando.
0: <laughs> I saw the day
1: he's staying on, right, as the director. Yeah, that's, the that's that's lip service, I think. That's just sure. window dressing. Yeah, I think he I think his head is definitely on the block. I mean, we only got, I say we PSA only got into this situation because of him at the helm. I mean, he obviously didn't fix it. So what makes anyone think that he's capable of fixing it now? Why would that, you know, be something that you would even consider keeping him on? Now, will he stay through? If you, you don't just buy a company and go in and just fire everyone, that's not good business. You need to go in a set. It'll, it'll take three to six months for them just to try to figure out what's all, what all is wrong. Okay, let's figure out what's all wrong. Now that we're on the inside, now that we have, you know, tickets, you know, to backstage, let's go see what's going on. That's going to take some time. So I think, but I think Joe Orlando's days are definitely numbered at Collector's Universe. I think they're going to spin off the coin business. Hmm. I think they'll end up saying, no, we don't want to do that anymore and sell it, you know, spin it off or sell it. And uh they're gonna just focus on cards.
0: Yeah, and that makes perfect sense, right? A guy like that's gonna figure, okay, let's look at the areas of the business that have the highest margins that we can capitalize on. And I, I don't think anyone is thinking what's gonna happen with the coin business right now. You're thinking what's gonna happen with the card business. Right. <laughs> yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Now, do you think we start to see I think it's Gemmaint? Is that the name of the company he's already? I think his name has been tied to a company called Jimament. I should have looked into that, but I think that's the, that's the the technology that's used to do computerized grading. Do you think we start to see a shift towards computerized grading in the near future?
1: I do. I don't, I don't think it's as close as maybe the public thinks. Okay. Uh, I do think it's, I heard somebody saying like have an app on your phone where you can take a picture of a card and it grades it for you right there as an idea and a theory. And I'm like, Um, there's, it's more than just that, right? I think a computer can do certain things. And then I think a human has to do certain things. So we can look at a card and a computer can tell you how much off center it is. Is it 70, 30, 60, 40, whatever, 50, 50, it can do that. I think it can tell you how sharp the corners are, Mm -hmm. you know, by looking at it, how, how sharp the color is, how many print defects might be on it or whatever, all the pixelation of the picture and all that kind of stuff, the resolution or registration, I should say. But at the end of the day, there's a word called I, or two words called I appeal, right? Of a card. And that matters to a grade. And that, I don't know that I appeal can be distinguished by a computer or a robot. So, you know do i think it provides some efficiencies in the future absolutely within a year or two i think we're going to see that a year but. or two
0: um interesting yeah you would think they would probably figure out a way they would they would start to implement it with certain cards you know if it's the tops flagship that comes in they set the parameters the algorithms for the and they they run it through a certain you know Release and test it that way. Autographs, maybe they pull off relics. They pull off something like that. What? Uh, you, it's funny you you mentioned like scanning from your phone because it's you could get to a world where you're scanning from your phone, and you're printing from your 3D printer the case around your card, right? And you pop out your graded card right from your house. Um, I think we should work on the technology behind that. I think we could we could figure something out. Uh, what do you think happens first? Do you think we get graded graded Fully graded cards, computerized, or do you think we have self-driving cars
1: first? Fully computerized graded cards, I think, happens first. (laughs) We've been talking about self-driving cars since 1963, so come on, let's go. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. What do you think about the computer technology? Do you think it can be... Because, look, a 10 right now you get a gym mint 10 on a, a card, you know that someone's opinion of what that card looked like. That grader could have been having a bad day or a good day, or they're just feeling generous. It, the human part, the human element is yep. injected in every grade. If you take that away, just like umpiring or refereeing and you leave it up to a computer Does that instill more confidence in the grading system or less confidence in the general public?
0: I think at first it it raises all kinds of doubts and it creates frustrations. But I think ultimately it instills more confidence. Um, I mean, because, look, yeah. I agree. There's eye appeal involved in grading and and there's some fun element to that whole idea that you get a good guy, a guy that's thinking about things a little bit differently and you get, you get to BGS 10, maybe it's BGS 95 normally or vice versa. But I mean, let's be honest, like it's, it wouldn't be that hard for a computer To catch the reflection, to catch surface scrapes, to look at the edges the right way, to look how centered an autograph is. Is the ink fully, you know, is it diluted at all? Like that stuff it could do easily. I agree. I think what you end up seeing, this is actually one of my cons, is that the whole scale of grading would be different. And we would, you would probably see a whole lot less PSA 10s, you know, pristine cards than we are used to seeing.
1: Because That's a great it, point. That's a great point. Um, and you and I both like put a 9 and a 10 on a modern card especially you put a 9 and a 10 next to each other on PSA and you go I can't what's the difference there's no difference in these two cards you know. And so I think a computer will be able to distinguish that even more. There'll be more of a you know there's something wrong if you get a 9. Yep. Yeah. versus it's genuinely perfect if it's a 10 and i think those are going to be a lot harder to come by in the future
0: yeah which means that psa 10s from here and backwards are just going to be worth more right because people aren't going to realize it going forward that they were graded differently and like that whole it just changes the spectrum of things so it's just another thing to factor into the way you invest your money in cards yep um so that that'll be really really interesting uh, since we're on the topic of negative, you okay if we shift it a little bit? Because I think uh, it's my show. Actually, we can shift it if we want. Uh, I work for you. <laughs> I, I I'm a little concerned that they're not that they're not public anymore because you have the oversight. You have to report back to the shareholders. You have a lot of the. I know it's probably frustrating, but you have all the regulations that you have to abide by. And you can get caught doing things that are shady. You don't have that anymore. So is there a conflict of interest from a guy that has the largest collection and has some of the most expensive cards ever uh, working for the company that will certify those and drive value? I'm not saying that Nat Turner would do any of that stuff. I'm just saying in general, does being private, does it create a whole new level of, concern and worry that things can happen that
1: are a little shady. It certainly creates the environment for that to happen. It'll be very interesting to see how this new group, how transparent they are about how things work and how things are going. Yeah. The problem is you don't know if they're telling the truth or not, whether they're acting transparent or not. No one has access to the financials. No one will, it's not public information anymore. And even if they put it out, it's not regulated by anybody to be checked and audited and they're not under certain guidelines that they have to do. If they're a public company, we'll see that there's a lot to come out. I agree with you. There's definitely some opportunity Hmm. for shadiness to happen. I'm a glasses half full guy. So, so I try to thank the best of people. <laughs> Sadly, they disappoint me more often than I wish. But let's hope that, and I think that's one of the pros is this guy's a hobbyist. He knows, right? That if he's if it's shady, he's seen. He's been a part of the PWCC controversy, the trimmed stuff. He knows. He knows it sucks as much as anyone to buy a card that's been trimmed and that's not, you know, declared that it's been trimmed. I don't have a card with a problem with anybody trimming a card. Just let me know that it's been trimmed. Yep. Right. So it's, it's a question of disclosure. It's a question of transparency and that's to be seen. That's to be determined how much yeah. they are.
0: Yeah. I think you nailed it. I think it will all come down to how transparency wants to be about things because this is, for all the glory that we've seen in the hobby, this is very, uh, still a very tight knit group. Hobbyists have this community element that you know very well. And the second a little bit, you see a little smoke, people will start to think there's fire and it could cause a little riff. And that, that could be the one thing I think causes this whole thing to, to not work out so well.
1: Um, what do you think are their biggest obstacles that they have to overcome?
0: Well, I think one of them is is not really on them. Uh, in a sense, I think they they don't they don't know how the market is going to play out next year. Or they, they have to have a great sense, I'm sure. But you know, at a certain point, like you process two to three million cards, whatever the backlog is, and you get those things out quick. Does that drive down value so much on graded cards where profitability starts to shrink? from PSA and the grading companies because people aren't seeing the value in grading cards anymore. I mean, there's a reason why there's pent up demand and the prices are shooting up, right? Because we're not seeing pop reports skyrocket through the roof. But if you see a Luis Robert shoot up 5,000 cards in two weeks, like on the pop report, like it's, you won't see the pop report shoot to 20,000 like you do for Ronald Cunha. It'll be.
1: All right. Well, here's a little bit of, you know, basic Keynesian market theory, supply and demand, right? I'm an economist by education, by the way, so Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to start talking a little bit about this stuff, and if you don't want to listen, turn the podcast off. Just kidding. Uh, Don't do that. What happens? You get rid of the backlog, you flood the market with PSA cards. Prices, they've been raising prices recently, right? Over the last six months because, hey, we're trying to slow down the flow of cards coming into us, so we've, we're raising prices, especially on ultra modern. Well, mm-hmm. now it costs $15 to grade a card that's only gonna be worth 30 if you get a gem mint 10. If you get a nine or an eight, it wasn't even worth sending in, right? So what, what'll what happen? Well, the demand will be lower, people won't wanna send those cards anymore because they can't make any money. If Jim Mint 10s become even more scarce, as we've just alluded to about the more strict grading, if you start computerizing that process, automating that process, then what'll do they do? They're going to lower prices again. They're going to go back to, the, I remember days when you could send in cards for $6.50 to PSA all day. Then you create profit for your end buyer. And look, what's their margin? It's not right especially if they start getting rid of people that they have to pay salaries to and computerize this stuff their overhead goes down dramatically they all they have to do is pay the electric bill and then they their margins are going to be gigantic and then so who cares if i do it for 650 i'm going to make i'm only it's costing me 8 cents a card or whatever it's like your iced tea at the restaurant you know the iced tea costs a nickel and they charge you $2.50 for it. Right? So it's the same kind of premise. You're going to get to an economies of scale with this where you can grade the card so cheaply from an overhead standpoint that no matter what I'm going to make, you know, some giant multiple on margin that I don't I can lower prices, people will start seeing the value and you just have it's just a cycle, right? It just runs through cycles like this. And that's where I see the future of grading cards. The The kind of five year future is prices coming back down to grade cards, which is good for the hobby.
0: Yeah. So I, I disagree with that. I, I think, I think we see prices continue to go up. I think, uh, I think you're going to see it's going to be expensive to put in some of the processes he's going to want to put in. I, I get it. He's going to find a way to optimize and, come up with technologies to down the road to maybe do this, but those things aren't cheap.
1: Those I'm things not saying am soon. I'm, I'm agreeing. I agree with you. It's not going to be soon.
0: Uh, you tell me one, one market where prices continue to drop in a growing, growing market. Give me one example of that. And then I would maybe believe you.
1: Oil and gas. Okay. But I don't think that's the thing. I don't think it's going to keep growing. We're gonna flood the market, right? Let's let's think a year. Mm-hmm. The backlog gets dissipated. Do you agree that's gonna happen? Do you think that? I one hundred percent. I
0: think they'll catch up with the backlog
1: for sure. Okay. So they catch up with the backlog, flood the market with Luis Robert rookies, and you know, there's one million Luka Doncic, you know, PSA tens out there. Right. The demand's gonna go down. Because people aren't going to see the profit to be made. They're going to be like, you know what? I don't want to spend $15 to grade this card. If the juice isn't worth the squeeze anymore and demand will come down. That's, so I don't think it's just going to keep growing exponentially, the graded card market.
0: Uh, okay, interesting. So, I mean, the reason why they were charging 650 10 years ago was because no one's thinking wanted to grade their card. Right. And you, you see declining demand, and we're at six fifty a card again, eight bucks a card again. It's more than likely, at least in, we agree in the short term, it would be because of declining demand, not because they've somehow come up with a machine that grades it for them. It's because Correct. demand dropped, they're lowering the price. Correct. Which I would would you agree would be a bad thing for the hobby, right? Yeah, we can all grade our cars cheaper, but no one wants to pay the premium anymore. And are you are you saying you're okay with that? Because that's the ebb and flow of a market.
1: Well, okay. Think about it this way. Do I think the sport card market is going to keep growing? Yes. Do I think grading has become will only become more popular? Yes. Do I think they're going to get more efficient and be able to process more cards as they implement new technology? Yes. And they're basically going to get done so much faster than they are doing now. They're going to be able to grade so many more cards in any given month or week or year that they're going to have idle, so to speak. They're going to be sitting around going, hey, we need some more orders to come in because we're caught up and we need more stuff. We can do more. We can process more. We can get through more cards. So how do you get more cards in the door? You lower prices. So that's not bad for the hobby. That means the hobby's growing. They're doing a really good job. They're being super efficient at getting grades happening so that and they get the technologies and the efficiencies going that they're now doing 10 times the amount of volume that they did previous. Let's say whatever multiple of volume that they will be able to handle in the new regime, under the new regime, the new technology. Well, now we need that many more cards coming in. We can't keep charging fifteen dollars. We need people to send in their their lower tier cards that they can now make a profit. You know, we need to we need to open and expand the world of cards that people are willing to submit to make it worth their while. You do that by lowering prices. That's the only answer to make that happen.
0: Uh, no, I disagree. I think I think the answer is you just process it faster, right? People are willing to pay a price. I don't think. I don't think Mr. Turner entered this thinking, I wanna jump into this business that's hot and I wanna come in and I wanna discount the prices. I wanna do I wanna build this business in a way where we can lower the prices by 50%. Like that that would be an awful business decision.
1: Well, let's demand is there. All right, let's think about this. I can I can do a million. I'm gonna throw out numbers just to help you understand my my theory here.
0: I know what you're saying. You can do five million cards at six bucks, or you can do two million cards at, at fifteen bucks. There but that—that—that's that, under the premise that if all of a sudden it's six bucks, people are going to send more cards than they are now. But I think what we're seeing there's a three million card backlog because people are already sending every stinking card they want. There's a reason why we have a pop pop report of twenty thousand cards on certain players two years ago.
1: And yet I have a stack of cards sitting right over here that I went through with some friends and I went, no, not worth grading. Even though I'd like to get it graded, i said, no, that card in a, even if I get a 10 is only worth 30 bucks. It costs me 15 to grade it shipping insurance time. No, thanks. But if I say, if I know it's only $10 to ca- send that card in, And I'm going to get it back in three weeks. Then I send it in and
0: everybody and their mom sends those cards in and the PSA 10 is worth 12 bucks and you don't do it.
1: Okay. Don't we have that problem now with a lot of modern cards where, I mean, what's the Luca pop right now? Good grief on prism. Just as an example.
0: Yeah, it's crazy high, right? I mean, it's, but you would take a Luca Prism right now, right? Because it's, it sells for five thousand dollars.
1: What? But as more and more of those come out, will that not drive the price down? No matter how good Luca performs on the basketball court.
0: Yeah, but I, I don't think, I don't think we're at a point in the hobby where people are afraid to send in cards because they're 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 they don't want to pay the the twelve dollars to wait the you know six to eight months. I think people were okay with that. that. Again, that's why we have the backlog. Because they realize, like, they see that it could become a $300 card if they grade a PSA 10. I don't think by – and, I, I, again, I just I don't think there's a lot of cards. Again, your situation of pointing to a stack of cards. Like, I have a stack of cards too. But, like, I know the reality is all of them are going to grade PSA 10. And if a few of them do in this particular stack like it, it might pay for the mistakes I made in the other grades, but like lowering the price, all it does is water down the prices for everything else. I guess I just don't see how we get to a world where we're back to lower prices for grading. I, I can't, I can't think through that. Maybe, maybe it may take some time. And again, this would be a great conversation to have with, with uh, with Matt turn and figure out what he's thinking with that. But
1: the great thing is, is both of us are talking about something that ultimately is good. Like, I don't, again, I don't think it's bad. I don't think it spells doom for the hobby in any way that I'm talking about here. Anything I'm talking about is only good for the hobby. It, it speaks to the growth of the hobby. And I think the continued growth of the hobby. And you're saying the same, we're saying more similar things than maybe you think. I just think that the hobby is going to grow. Grading's only going to grow, I think. So... I just think they're not gonna. They're gonna be able to grade so many that again. Would you rather, you know, grade six million and make forty percent profit margin, or grade two million and make a hundred percent profit? You know, there's a number, and they've they've. I'm sure they've figured it out what that is of. Where do we need to get to where there's that equilibrium between supply and demand, and price is a part of that discussion?
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure, yeah. I I guess back to the original point I was trying to make. I I think my concern would be, and again, we're in unprecedented territory in the hobby. We do not know if the market can continue at this pace. Like at a certain point, we're gonna hit, we're gonna hit a little bit of a, a a tipping point where we just can't continue to pay the prices for the PSA tens of the world, right? Like if if gas went up to seven bucks a gallon, right? We would have certain people driving and certain people wouldn't. There's going to be a lot of people that can't play in this game anymore. If we continue to see this rise and at what point does the glory days of PSA and BGS right now, like, is he buying at peak price? (laughs) Maybe he might be buying at peak price.
1: Well, (laughs) think about this though, over time, and this is, my 40 years in the hobby speaking now. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll speak on the vintage world because it's the world I live in the most. But what we've seen in that, because you're right, I can't afford to play in buying PSA eights of vintage cards, say cards from the 60s anymore. Yeah. So guess what? I'm buying sixes and fives, mm-hmm. which is guess what those prices are doing? Bing, 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 bing. Right? You're going to see, I can't afford a PSA 10 Giannis anymore. I'm going to talk basketball because that's what you love. But I can't buy a PSA 10 Prism.
0: Take the G out of it.
1: Giannis, Akatapuko, whatever. That wasn't that bad, actually. Bless you. Yeah. Akatapuko. So Giannis, I can't afford a PSA 10 Prism anymore. I'm going to try to buy a 9. Well, a 9, you know, because we all have budgets. Everybody has a budget. And well, yeah. I can't do a nine anymore. I'm going to do an eight, which by the way, is still a near mint card <laughs> near eight or near mint nines are mint. And so I just think you're going to see people, the grades are good. The higher demand is going to be for the lower grades because of the super high prices on the tens.
0: Yeah.
1: And that'll just be a gradual process. It's happening in vintage now. I'm telling you, people are going, yep, I'm priced out of X, Y, Z high-end stuff. I'm going to just, I'll say, I just want the card. I want an X, you know, a 1975 George Brett rookie. Well, I'm, I can't afford a nine anymore. So
0: yeah, which it brings up a good question. I think for those that don't listen to your podcast, the golden age of cardboard, and you don't know anything about vintage, go back and start at episode one. What are you in 14 episode 13,
1: 14. Fourteen, it's coming up yeah. this week. Fifteen,
0: uh, every week on a Wednesday. Follow us on YouTube. You can hear uh, Mike's podcast, an incredible, the best vintage car podcast in the hobby. do a great job. Thank but what, what is the mindset of a vintage collector going and buying a PSA six of a car? Because you're all these new folks coming into the hobby are are thinking, okay, I want to go buy Michael Porter Jr. Is PSA ten silver card because when he has a couple good games, I'm going to flip this bad boy. That's not the mindset when you buy a PSA six of a card from the fifties. Uh, is is the mindset I want to buy this card? And I want to store it away because it's something that's never it's obviously not being printed again, and it is a piece of history. What what
1: talk me through the mindset there? That has a lot to do with it, I think, in the mind of a vintage collector. It, <sighs> I guess I can speak the way I think I want the highest grade that I can afford for any given card. And if my collect, if your collection's broad like mine is, if you're very narrowly focused, you can, if you, let's say you only collect Carl Ustremski, let's use that. Well, he has 20 cards. You can save up and bidding on your budget and whatnot. You can go get eights and nines and almost any one of his cards. Not they're all going up, but they're not like, they don't all have commas in them. You know yeah. what I mean? And <laughs> right. So his rookie would be, but that may be the only card that you have to quote unquote pay up for. If you're buying Mantle, they've been priced high and crazy forever. They're only and they're only going up. The big guys, Clemente, Mantle, Mays, Aaron, those guys are guys that'll they're never cheap. They've never been cheap, relatively speaking. And now they're really not cheap. So the vintage card collector says, I want to buy the, or at least Mike says, I want to buy the highest grade I can. And I used to be able to buy eights for kind of that price range that I was willing to spend on certain cards. Now I'm having to, I'm forced to, given my budget, given the cards that I want, I can't afford eights anymore. I can't really afford sevens anymore. Now I'm going to get sixes and fives. And hey, just a nice clean example. But if you have the money, you can I've said this all the time. I say this first of all, I I, I think two things. Today's high prices are tomorrow's discounts on any card, because I think things are only gonna go up. So if you think it's crazy today, wait a year and you'll kick yourself for not buying that card in the vintage market, I should say. Not necessarily in the modern market because it does fluctuate so much with performance. You don't have to worry about that with the vintage guys. Most of them are dead and they're not going to play anymore or, you know, have a domestic violence incident or a D or whatever. Nothing's going to affect their card prices in terms of their day to day, except them dying, which only, you know, makes their card prices go up. And so I totally forgot my point. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs>
0: That is the result of being old, unfortunately. Uh, yes. Hobby. Uh, hey, my, my response to that is today's modern is tomorrow's vintage. So, hey, using your logic, we should just hold all this stuff. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm totally kidding. Print runs are ridiculous. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, keep talking. I'm very curious. I, I want to respond to that. If you if you know your second point, you can say it. But if you don't, I want I want to respond to your first point.
1: Go ahead, and I'll maybe think of it, and we'll make it in a whole nother segment.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah we just did that it was great um, because I remember about gosh middle of the summer we we're on an episode together and you mentioned that we've reached a point in the hobby where you're you're thinking that you first off are stopping buying because prices were getting out of hand and second you were thinking about starting to sell some of your stuff because prices were so high why yeah. would you do that if you think they keep going up
1: well, I I rethought that honestly. Okay. And I started buying again, but I started again. I was only frustrated because I couldn't buy the cards and the grades that I wanted to. They were now I was now priced out. And I've resolved personally, this is every every collector has to make this personal choice of what they want to do. I want to buy a bunch of uh, Say your budget's fifty dollars a card. I don't know, whatever your budget is. Do I want to buy a one really good high-end card, or do I want to buy a bunch of kind of medium grade cards? That's that's the dilemma we all face in our collecting habits. I came to the personal choice of I still want all these cards, I'm gonna just find lower grade examples that I just wouldn't have it. So I was only frustrated because I couldn't buy that card in a seven or an eight anymore. I had to buy fives now. And so that's where the frustration came from. Given the parameters that I've set on myself, again, every collector is going to create their own world that they live in, in the hobby. Um, There are hobbyists that have a hundred dollars a month to spend on cards. Mm -hmm. There are guys that spend thousands and thousands and tens of thousands a month on cards and everything in between. None of it's wrong. We're just all different. Wherever you are, you need to find a happy place for that. And because that's the whole thing. This is a hobby. I think this is still a hobby. There are a lot of people that don't. They think it's an investment and they and I want it to go up too. I don't want it to have no value, but that's a whole nother podcast, isn't it? Um, yeah,
0: it is. I. It's funny because if you look at, gosh somebody on our our discord posted something about a a collector i shouldn't even say collector somebody snagged a thousand boxes of prism football through bots through bots okay. bragging about it in Twitter uh, or on Twitter and uh, there was a discussion taking place underneath with everybody just about how this is this has basically sucked the life out of Hobbyists being able to enjoy the hobby. Right. And which you just say, you know, I want to, I still think this is a hobby. Like we talk about computerized grading. We talk about bots buying all the boxes up. Right. At a certain point, you wonder when we truly do wash out the hobbyists that were in this hobby because it was so unique and personal by injecting all this, you know, technology.
1: (sighs) That might, I'm not saying that's an impossible future. I don't know that it isn't. Um, that saddens me to even, cause I have to admit that that's a realistic or that's not a, re, maybe not real. It's a possibility. Hmm. That would be a shame because the guys that, again, I don't, cardboard is not what I use to make my rent or, you know, put food on the table. There are plenty of guys out there that are doing that. They're making yeah. their living flipping cards And good on them. Yeah. What happens to the guys like me that we do it for fun. If it goes up great. I'm not a seller. I didn't, and I didn't sell any cards by the way, as you asked, alluded to earlier, I did seriously contemplate it because the point was at what point is it irresponsible for me to keep holding all this stuff? Right. Like, I could buy a house, like literally with cash, with what's sitting behind me. Is that smart? Is that the best thing for my family long-term? What's the point of keeping it if it's just gotten so crazy? Everybody has a price. There's nobody that can tell me out there. I would never sell my cards for any amount of money. You're a liar. Sorry, we all have a price. I have a number on it. You can have everything in here, in this room, if you're watching on YouTube, that for a price. And no matter how much I love it, which I do, and how much I have a passion for it. So at some point I was thinking, guys, this is just your response. Is it getting to that point where my price has been met? Where the Man, maybe I am at the price. And on some cards, a certain cards, it was getting really close where I was like, I can't hold a card. I, I had a Luca, by the way, I bought for $15. It's now a $600 card, you know, a PSA 9. A year ago, I bought it. So I was like, is it why should why do I keep that? Yep. Because it's going to go to twelve hundred, maybe. Um, which I still have it, by the way. Of course you do. <laughs>
0: um, this, this is gonna be a great segue into another episode of the And it's gonna be how to construct a portfolio in the same way you would construct a portfolio of stocks. Because the question that always comes up. Uh, with new folks coming in. And, and so it's not its not even about like, hey, I got this card in a pack. When should I sell it? It's, hey, I got a Luka Doncic and it's gone up 500%. When is it irresponsible? And if you're managing a portfolio of stocks, you have you have these metrics and, and these levers, you know, when you're going to sell, like, you know, when it hits a certain percentage, it's, you're going to sell. Yeah. It'd be great to coach a group of people on, what you think is a good way to manage that. And I have my thoughts on that too. Like set your parameters and roll with it, right? It's more than just a
1: storm away forever. Set your parameters and don't think twice. Yeah, don't be greedy. That's what right. I tell my, my guys that when my clients, when we buy stock for them, I, first thing I tell them is what's our number where we're gonna sell? And you decide beforehand. And what's the number that I sell if it goes down? Cause no one wants to lose all their money. Yeah. So you, you put these guardrails, so to speak on your, and let's say it's on a stock. We might say, Hey, if it goes up a hundred percent, I'm just using a, uh, some number. Yeah. I'm going to get out. I'm not going to be greedy. Yep. You know? And it, that would be the same mentality I would tell someone to have if they're buying cards to flip them Yeah, buying cards to own them forever. That's not an answer. It doesn't matter. If you're or if you're buying cards thinking you're going to own them forever, hoping you're going to own them forever. If you're buying them to invest, you're going to you have to diversify, right? Just like you would in anything else. You can't put all your eggs in one basket. And the greatest thing I would tell people is have let's say you believe in Luca. I'll just use Luca. And you should buy 10 of his rookies, not just one, because if it goes up crazy, guess what? You sell half of them and you still, and that way you win both ways. You make profit and now you're playing with house money. I do that yeah. with stock all the time where mm-hmm. if we have 500 shares of a company and it goes up you know, super crazy or it meets our threshold, the first thing the client always asks me is, do you think it's going to go higher? which is guess what everybody's asking about the hobby right now? Do you think it's going to go higher? My answer is I don't know. I don't know any more about the hobby than I do about any given stock. I, I'd i like to think the momentum is good and you can say whatever about the ba- whatever the company or the player, if you're talking cards. But at the end of the day, if you say, look, we're not wrong. We're right both ways. Is the right way I like to say it. If we sell half of it, let's sell half the stock or half the cards. I got 10. Lucas, let's sell half of them. now we're playing with house money. If it goes up, great. If it doesn't, we're, we're, it doesn't kill us. Yeah, Holding too long is always the problem. Not, does that make sense? Like it's all, that's always the issue. People hold too long. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure.
0: Well, it's, it's funny. If you listen to uh, a, a good podcast on, uh, you know, VC investing or, um, you know, seed investing or, or whatever it may be, right? you're trying to pitch an idea to somebody good VC investors. Like one of the main questions they ask is what is your exit strategy? Like what is your plan to get out? It may not be executed perfectly, but what is at least your plan? And I think you have to, especially in this very fast moving environment of sports cards, even if you are buying to hold long-term, like you still need to have an idea of what a like, practical exit strategy could be for you in this investment especially when you're getting into high dollar cards. Uh and if you're asking that question after you buy it then you've <laughs> it's, too, too, late. it's right. too late.
1: It's too late. Um, we decided beforehand. But all of course this has to, everything to do with the PSA acquisition by Nat Turner and his group, you know. So I feel like we're <laughs> we're like we're doing three different podcasts here like this is crazy. Uh,
0: we are, we want to talk about so much and we're doing it in one episode, uh, which probably means it's a good time to
1: end and pick this up in another episode.
0: You don't seem excited about that. You just seem like you want to keep talking.
1: Man, I, you're driving the train. I'm, I'm just a passenger. <laughs> like I tell everybody, the average listener drops off after 47
0: minutes. So we've already lost most of the people anyway, because we're at 59, we're at 60 minutes.
1: Uh, they missed all that great commentary. Don't you have the five questions for me or any of that fun stuff that you do on your podcast? I do. Are we going to do that? Or am I just, we're such good friends that I don't even get the, the guest treatment.
0: Um, no, I got them for you. Um, it's by the way, if you haven't listened to the wives episode, go listen to the wives episode. Uh, you'll see the link up here somewhere. I'll put it in here. Um, your wife is awesome with the five questions. I can't believe she nailed your drink. What was it? It was a, was it a? On pecan?
1: Pecan praline whiskey. It is fantastic.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. I'm going to look it up right now while we're sitting here. Pecan. Praline. Pecan. Speaking of that, Jeff owes us something, doesn't he? That's what I want from Jeff, by the way. So are you, so here's what I'm looking at. I'll show it to you. Tell me what I need to get. That's not the one, is it? That's Tumblr. <laughs> that's what I get for looking for Nat Turner. Um, here you go. So here's con praline. Any that's there? it. So
1: that's, that's the one. one. That's it. Wow.
0: Okay. What do these go for? Well, there you go. Water. Cheap. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, must be 21 or years older to. Enjoy this beverage.
1: So good. So good. And you can put it with, you know, if you're a whiskey drinker at all or bourbon drinker, you can mix it with Coke or Diet Coke or whatever. And, or you, I just drink it straight. It's a sipping whiskey for me. And you can drink it neat or on the rocks. It's good either way. Beautiful. Um,
0: They're not I, a sponsor
1: of, our, of our network, by the way. What's that? They're not a sponsor of our network, just so everybody knows. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, I'm excited about doing some rapid fire with you. It's been really nice having you on the show.
1: I have enjoyed it very much, Ty. Thank you.
0: You're good. Uh, you, I think you've, uh, you've made me realize I need to articulate thoughts better because you're so well-spoken All your maturity.
1: Um, all right. Ready for this? Rapid fire. Rapid fire. Let's go.
0: What is your favorite Disney character?
1: My favorite Disney character. Um, (laughs) Probably Timon from an alliance.
0: Okay, nice. What is your favorite memory with your daughter?
1: Man, going to the World Series with her in 2010.
0: 2010, so that's Texas first. Who are they playing that year?
1: Uh, Sorry, 2011 versus the Cardinals.
0: Okay, gotcha. Nice. Did you take her to all the games or one of the games
1: or one of the games, but it was a great experience. It was fun.
0: Okay. Awesome. What is your favorite flavor of ice cream? <sighs>
1: That's so not fair. Uh, I, whenever I go get ice cream, I get a double dip and I get mint chocolate chip and peanut butter cup. Okay. So, but if I had to choose, I'd choose peanut butter cup.
0: Are you, are you a Reese's guy then? Do you grab Reese's? Oh
1: <laughs> that candy ever created. Be better, what's not to love? Come on,
0: uh, yeah, agreed. Um, if you if you could run any non-hobby related business, what company would you be the CEO of?
1: Non-hobby related, I would run the Texas Rangers.
0: Let's go non-sports related.
1: Let's Thank really stretch here. That wasn't fun. Uh not that's all the stuff I love. (laughs) (laughs) Sports and sports cards. Like um diversification, Mike. Come on. Golly. This is supposed to be rapid fire. I'm not doing very good on the rapid. Nike. No, it's sports related. Dang it. We'll take Nike because I don't want to. I'd I'd run, I tell you what. I'll answer the, well, Callaway golf. I would run Callaway golf. Are you a big golfer? We haven't talked about this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah,
0: you, we have talked about this. That's right.
1: uh, Oh, the benefits of being in Texas. It was was 50 degrees, windy, but yes.
0: Okay. Uh, Outside of the Bible, which book do you wish you could have written?
1: Which book do I wish I could have written? Common Sense by Thomas Paine.
0: Common sense by Tom Thomas Thomas Paine. Interesting, okay.
1: It created our democracy. <laughs> <laughs> Common sense? Seriously? Okay. You didn't go to school and do world okay. history and
0: never read it once. Okay. Con- I didn't um, to go to school either, so. Gotcha. <laughs> Um, and last question, only because I love what you've done overseas, but tell me, uh, tell me about your favorite time in South America.
1: Favorite time in South America. This might be kind of a cheesy story, but uh, I do mission work all over Latin America because for a big, ugly gringo, I speak pretty good Spanish and I love the people and they have great hearts. And I was in Ecuador and we had a lady who we were going to help. There were just six of us, three dads and our sons were with us. And we were going to clean out her house. And her house was literally a room no bigger than this room that I'm in now. She just wanted us to clean it out. And I thought, man, that's not enough stuff. We need to be doing more. You know, we're coming down here to help and we, we can do so much more than that. And that's all she wanted us to do. And she had to run some errands. And so we got done cleaning it. And I'm all the while going, man, this is such a waste of our time. This is silly. And I get, we get done and we, we finish the work and she comes back and she is just bawling at how amazing this makes her feel and how much pride it gives her and self-esteem. And just, she's just going on and on and thanking us. And, oh my gosh. That was when uh, God kind of kicked me in the nuts and he said, no, no, you're going to do what I want you to do down here, not what you think you should be doing. And it completely, this was the second mission trip I ever went on and it completely changed my perspective on serving that art—any anytime you serve anyone, you're doing it for their benefit, not for yours. Might you receive an ancillary benefit from it? Of course. Does it provide joy? You bet. But at the end of the day, you need to remember who you're working for and it ain't you. (laughs) So that was my most amazing experience in South America. Maybe not the answer you were looking for, but that's the truth. I love it. Mike,
0: the baseball collector. Thank you, man, for being on. I appreciate it.
1: All right, Ty. See you later. All right.